You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We finished the high priestly prayer of Jesus last week in the end of John chapter 17. And we begin today with uh, this section leading us directly almost immediately into Jesus being betrayed by Judas. We're not going to quite get to that today. As a matter of fact, your bulletin will tell you that we're covering verses 1 through 2 when in, all, when in fact we're only going to cover verse 1. We'll pick up verse 2, Lord willing, next week. The Lord would not let me out of the first verse in study and preparation. And so if you're able at this time, I would ask that you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Just would like to read the first 11 verses with you for context's sake and then pray and we'll begin. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord our God, I come to You now in the name of Your Son. The One before us here, turning the corner and marching towards that hill, that awful place in which He would die. God, I pray that You would give grace, that You would embolden and empower me, that Your Word would fall upon our ears and upon our hearts, that we might rejoice and what we find in these pages. God, please protect me from misspeaking. Oh, Father, I am sensitive to the fact that this is holy ground, a place in which we ought to remove our shoes and tread lightly and reverently. And yet, oh, Father, you have preserved these words for us to look into. I pray that by your spirit, you would direct us Tune our hearts to sing your praises according to what is before us now. Oh, Father, guard me from error. Let me go no further than you would have me to go. 
And yet I pray that we would enter in to what is before us now. Lord, let us see Christ. Let it be lifted up before us. And I ask in his name. Amen. The title of this sermon is Into Gethsemane. Into Gethsemane. Now, if you are listening at the reading, the introduction, you will note that Gethsemane is not specifically referenced in our text today. And as we move forward, I hope to engage a little bit with you on why that is and why we're going to consider it, though John doesn't specifically state it. But before that, we'll start in verse one, which says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. The first thing we look at is this expression, when Jesus had spoken these words. Everything that we're going to see from this point, from these first two verses forward, John 18, all the way up forward through the rest of the Gospel of John, is a continual direction towards the cross. Now, we've noted before, Jesus has already been using language that indicates to us a transition. He said things such as this, The hour has come, Father, glorify yourself that the Son may be glorified. We've read expressions like this. But here is where these things practically and really begin to take place. From this point forward, Jesus actually and really is beginning to come under the opposition, the arrest, the persecution, and eventually his death. There's a shift in our text here. We've reached the point at which all of Jesus' words and all of the things he's performed have been inevitably leading us to. And the next words that are going to follow these first words here, when it says that Jesus had spoken these words, what's coming after this is Jesus' betrayal, His arrest, His trial, His mistreatment, and then the slaughter of the Lamb of God. Now think about this. We've already seen, already only in John's Gospel, how how these disciples have been opposed They've been fearful for their lives. They've been challenged. They've been disregarded. They've been accused for various things. And yet, nothing like that which they were soon to face. Consider the significance of the expression. Jesus says, when Jesus had spoken these words. When Jesus had spoken these words. Which words is John referring to when he says that? Well, Undoubtedly, John is referring to the words Jesus has just been offering up in John 17. We've just spent a number of weeks, even over a month, I don't know exactly how long, but we were in John 17 for a while, weren't we? Looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer, His petitions to the Father on behalf of His people. And we concluded last week seeing Jesus praying that His followers, you and I included if we're in Christ, would see Him, would be with Him where He is to see His glory. And that He would continue to make the Father's name known to us. Jesus' prayers on behalf of His disciples. Now think about this. In light of all that Jesus has been praying, what relevance does that have upon the context of John's historical record? Let me suggest this to you. Whenever John says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he's telling us that everything that's happening now in John 18 that this could not and would not happen until Jesus can, he finished that high priestly prayer. The things Jesus prayed for His followers, for His disciples, 
that those things, those prayers, those words must be uttered by Christ prior to what happens here. Think of it this way. As we're going to see in a later message, not today, down from verse nine, nine, verse nine tells us of John 18, that this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. Do you know where Jesus said that back in John 17, as he's praying concerning his own, he's saying, Father, I have kept them. You've given me in your name and I have not lost one of them. Now, Father, you keep them, those whom I have kept up until now. We're finding out that here in the immediate context of John 18, Jesus' prayers are being fulfilled. His petitions on behalf of the disciples are being fulfilled. Now, as we come to see this opposition, suffering, misery that these disciples are going to come up against, there's a measure of comfort in seeing that these things are according to God's perfect oversight and protection. Now, however much they must suffer, these disciples, they would not be lost according to Christ's prayer. It says when Jesus had spoken these words. Now, immediately I'm struck by this question. Are you aware of God's sovereign control over history as it relates to your own life, as it relates to your own suffering and difficulty? Here, these disciples, before they're opposed, before they're cast out, before many of them Meet their end through death. It says when Jesus had spoken these words, had prayed over them. Here's my question. Do you imagine that God's purposes for you have unfolded out of the order with which he has purposed them? Do you look at your hardships and your trials and think God has no part in this, no place in this? Clearly, with these disciples, we're seeing this. These things that they're going to go through and are going through even here and now will not happen until Jesus had finished his prayer on their behalf. And though the providences of God towards you and I may often come to us with a frown, he hides a smiling face behind them. You recognize the hymn? Through a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Here's the point. That God's rule, Christ's rule and his reign are such that nothing in your life is going to come to pass without both his purpose for you, as well as his preserving hand upon you. The next part of verse one, we read this. It says he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. What do you suppose is the significance of a statement like that? The brook Kidron. You ought to be aware by now that there's nothing in your Bible by happenstance. We heard this morning in the other room that every word in your Bible is inspired and breathed out by God. There are no coincidences. There are no, I wonder if that's supposed to be there or not. This expression, this reference, go even check the varying translations that have differences at different points. They all tell us that this is where they were at. They crossed over the brook Kidron. Now here's my question. Is this just simply a geographic reference with no significance at all, do you suppose? What is the significance of this brook Kidron that Jesus crosses on his way to this garden? Well, if you'll bear with me for a moment, you can take this down or turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. And we'll read, there's a reference made to this exact place, this geographic region, and it's striking, it's compelling the parallel that we see between 
Jesus and what we find in 2 Samuel 15. Begin reading in verse 23 with me. 2 Samuel 15, verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimez, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. What's the significance of this brook of Kidron that Jesus is crossing over here? This is the exact place where David was in the midst of his son Absalom's treachery and conspiracy against him. You go and read the context here. Here you have Absalom, his son, and he's stirring up the people of Israel, offering them sweet, honeyed words and and, and relationship and kisses even at details. And he's stirring up this conspiracy against David. And David, fleeing from his own son, crosses this place during all this mischief and all this heartache. He comes weeping and broken. And ultimately, this is what we see in David. He is seen to submit himself to God's good judgment. Did you hear that from David? Let him, let God do to me what seems good to him. In other words, you know what David's essentially saying there? Your will be done. His will be done, not mine. In the face of this adversity and heartache and trial and difficulty, His enemies pursuing him, those who should have loved him, seeking after his own death. That's going to be relevant today as we work through this and move in to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where we're going. You can go and read many psalms of anguish and lament that are accredited to this particular part of David's life. As he suffered violent fits of anxious unrest, David was cast upon the Lord's mercy and goodness. That's exactly what we're going to see in the Lord Jesus Christ today in a peculiar way. One of the reference I want to look at with you concerning this Kidron, this brook of Kidron is found in first Kings. First Kings. Look with me at first Kings chapter two. This may surprise you. It's a little bit different context that we find here. but no less significant. 1 Kings chapter 2, begin reading in verse 37 with me. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. 
Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shammai said to the king, What you say is good, as my lord and king has said, so will your servant do. So Shammai lived in Jerusalem many days. But it happened at the end of three years. It's an interesting span of time to be referencing here. Hold on to that thought. So it says that it happened that at the end of three years that two of Shammai's servants ran away to Achish, son of Mekah, king of Gath. And when it was told Shammai, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shammai arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath, to Achish, to seek his servants. Shammai went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shammai had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shammai and said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever, you shall die. And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I commanded you? The king also said to Shammai, You know in your own heart all the harm that you did to David my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he and he went out and struck him down and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And maybe you think, well, what's the relevance of all of that to our text? Jesus crossing over the Kidron. Well, Consider the themes which are brought out throughout that narrative. There is a clear prophetic command from the Lord against passing over this brook. The day you pass over this brook, you're going to die. There's going to be your own blood on your head. And Shammai, after three years, ventures out across this brook. What for? In order to seek out and recover his runaway servants. And the cost of recovering these wayward servants was his own life with a reference to the blood of his own head. And the result was that these servants of his were brought back into Jerusalem. And as we saw at the end of that telling, the kingdom was established through his death. Now, I challenge you. There will be those surely inclined to accuse me of spiritualizing that text or reading too much into it. And my response is, let them accuse me. If the worst thing that anyone can say about me when I look in a text like that is you're too committed to looking for Jesus Christ and Him crucified in the Scriptures, I can live with that kind of criticism. I can live with that kind of accusation. And here's the thing we've got to see. What we see in that text is rather than chalking it up to some cosmic coincidence and denying the Lord's revelation of His own plan through Christ revealed in the Old Testament, we should see this. We should rejoice to see God's hand of providence foretelling and establishing of God's kingdom. How? Through the death of Christ as He rescues and redeems His wayward servants by passing over the Kidron, sweating great drops of blood. Did you catch that? Your blood will be on your head even as Christ great drops of blood on His head. And then ultimately offering up His own life as a ransom for his wayward servants. Now, the difference between Christ and Shammai is that Jesus Christ was never guilty of dis disobeying the Lord's command. Shammai died as a result of his own guilt, 
while Jesus Christ died because of his own people's guilt. Nevertheless, we see he passed over the Kidron. And what exactly did he find when he got over this stream, over this brook? What did he find there over the Kidron? The next, ver- the next part of our verse 1 of John 18 says, where there was a garden. Now this is the point where we're going to, for a moment, depart from, leave John behind temporarily. John does not mention it by name and neither does he reveal the details of the occasion, but this is a reference to Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, there are a couple of reasons why John doesn't give us the details of Gethsemane. Perhaps one, and maybe the most obvious one on the surface, is that John's focus throughout his gospel has been what primarily? You remember we saw in the end, John chapter 20, verse 31, we saw this. John says, these things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's focus has been to set Jesus before us as the Son of God, as deity. And perhaps because what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is such an evidence of Christ in his humanity, perhaps that's why John doesn't focus on it. Now, that's not to suggest that John was concealing the true humanity of Christ, but that was not his primary focus. And ultimately, we know that the Holy Spirit is the author of everything John wrote. It was God who determined that John would not write a detailed narrative of Gethsemane. And even as it was God who determined that John would be the only gospel writer to give us Jesus' high priestly prayer to the extent that he did. God determined these things. Now, with that in mind, for the sake of context, and in order that we might continue to have a chronological grasp of the unfolding of the events in the life of Christ, I'll ask you to consider with me what exactly took place in this garden from the other gospel writers. What happened in Gethsemane? What are we told? Now, for clarification, I'm not going to give an exhaustive or detailed description or proclamation, but I want to hover over it. And because John mentions it, mentions this crossing over this brook at Kidron, I want to look for and see if we can find parallels to those descriptions of what Christ would come and do that we've seen from the Old Testament in light of what the other gospel writers tell us from Gethsemane. I'm going to look at all three of them, the synoptics as they're called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. First look with me at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, 
So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, if you would look forward to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We see a very similar telling, a few changing of words and expression in Mark's account, but essentially the same idea. Read with me from verse 32 following. Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer. him. And he came to the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As we move to look at our final account in Luke, let me reiterate Jesus' words to you that many of you may be weary and close to sleep. Be watchful. Pay attention. This is important for your soul. Don't sleep through the words of eternal life. Listen. Don't let my monotone voice potentially lull you to sleep. Hear the words of Jesus. Hear His voice. From Luke chapter 22 is the final account we'll consider before revisiting the three of them collectively. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39, we find this. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray you may not enter into temptation. Now, hearing these 
three accounts, vivid accounts of Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, there are two overarching themes that I want you to take hold of. Two primary focuses that we see in all three of these accounts. And they are these. Jesus' commitment to the Father's will and the soul-stretching agony of the realization of the wrath of God that He would drink. Now it is important, fundamentally important, that you and I realize that Jesus is not contradicting what He's already said. Some people read the words of Jesus here saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. And they think, okay, He's finally realized. He's having cold feet. He's thinking, well, I know I came here, but... I don't know if this is really such a good idea after all, as though he were schizophrenic. Consider once again what Jesus said in John 12, 27. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus Christ was fully committed to this very hour that he has come to. In fact, the cup, in fact, Jesus, the prayer that he offers for the cup of God's wrath to pass or to be removed does not exclusively mean that Jesus would not drink it. Do you understand what I'm saying? We oftentimes hear this language, Jesus saying, let this cup pass from me. And we think Jesus is saying, Father, let it be that I not drink this cup. Now, now hold on, there's going to be something to do with that as we look forward, but just Consider for Matthew's account. Listen to this. Jesus says in verse 39 of Matthew 26, Jesus says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now listen. 42, he says, and again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass Unless I drink it. Do you get what I'm telling you now? Jesus prays, let this cup pass the first time. The second time through, he says, the cup's still passing. If it cannot pass, unless I drink it. Jesus' commitment was to the passing of the cup, whether he drank it or not. Jesus' goal in coming into this world was to extinguish and remove and satisfy the wrath that was in that cup. It was necessary that that cup of wrath be passed one way or another. Jesus is not circumventing the will of God whenever he says, let this cup pass. It had to pass. And as we're going to see, it gloriously did pass. Perhaps not in the way you might at first expect. Jesus was in full agreement with the Father that this wrath, against the sins of His people must be poured out. It had to be extinguished and entirely removed. And yet, the true humanity of Christ is seen to be coming to grips with what would be required of Him in order to remove it. Now, I told you, and I prayed in the beginning, we are, we are on holy ground. I mentioned, I've mentioned to people really since I began preaching, that there are a couple of different things that I that really terrify me, that cause me to tremble whenever I begin to try to preach on them. The Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' prayer is one of them. 
And the other is Jesus' expression on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both of these things, I tremble when I look at them. And this is why. Because there are those who will like to look at those verses and say, well, it doesn't really mean what it says. Jesus didn't really mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't really pray, let this cup pass from me, having to do with his own dread at drinking it. And then there are those who I believe go too far in their expressions. And here's what I'll tell you. These things are meant to stir our souls towards some very significant and incomprehensible realities. If you hear these words today and you think, I've got that, no big deal. Oh, take a step back and realize you're looking into an endless depth. You're looking into something you'll spend all eternity tracking down. And yet, tread lightly. We're talking about the relationship within the triune God. There can be no disunity and yet there's language that suggests For even a fraction of a second, there was division. Now, I can't tell you everything that this means, but I know this, that Christ and his humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane is coming to full awareness of what it meant that he drank the cup of God's wrath for his people. That's what we're seeing. This fury could not pass unless it be drunk in full. Now, whatever else Jesus prayer concerning the drinking of this cup reveals to us, here's the most important thing for you to understand is that there has never been, nor will there ever be a more horrific, agonizing, terrifying and awful substance than that which was in this cup. You cannot fathom what's in this cup. You will not grasp what's here. And as the eternal Son from the Father, Jesus Christ, He had no illusions as to the extent of what was in this cup. And yet, His humanity was being brought into an awareness of the awful load that He'd come to drink. He cries out for deliverance from this horrible, horrible wrath. And these cries were the genuine cries of a man, truly man who was recognizing the agony and torment of separation from God's love and suffering under God's judgment. Consider this for a moment. Hebrews chapter 5. You can turn there and take this down. Think about what's expressed in Hebrews chapter 5 concerning these cries from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 7, we read this. In the days of His flesh. Pause. That's an immediate, specific reference to Jesus' humanity. This is Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus as this this one sent from God, this Messiah. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's a fascinating thought, isn't it? Here we've just concluded John 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we're coming into the expression Jesus has crossed the brook of Kidron. And here He is praying 
cries and prayers and supplications to the Father for deliverance. Let this cup pass from me. Don't let me be destroyed. Preserve my soul, we saw from Psalm 16 a couple of weeks ago. Even in Psalm 6 this morning, there's this weeping in bed filled with his tears, lamenting over the judgment and wrath of God, the pursuit of his enemies. These things contained and expressed through the mouth of Jesus Christ. And though the suffering and substitution were not completed in this garden. Catch this. The reference to Hebrews chapter five tells us that this Jesus, through his prayers and supplications, he was heard by God, the father, as he cried out to be delivered and that the grave not keep him and hold him. Though his suffering and substitution have not yet been completed in the garden, we must conclude that a mighty victory was indeed won in this prayer that Jesus offers. Think on this. The first Adam, he fell under the weight of temptation and Adam was in a perfect garden with nothing but his own lusts and the lies of a serpent leading him astray. That's how Adam fell. This last Adam, he conquered the agonizing pleas of his human frame in a garden filled with thorns and a blood-stained brow from sweating drops of blood. And he rises with tears in his eyes and the will of God etched on his heart as he marches forward to the cross. This second, this last Adam, Experiences victory over the temptations of the flesh in a garden. Now I say, what is the application to you and I in light of this horrific and yet glorious scene? We read when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. I'm going to be very frank with you. I'm about to spiritualize this text. John's purpose, I believe, unapologetically, is to tell us that the disciples, the eleven who were remaining with Jesus after Judas has gone out, Jesus and His disciples were together in this garden. That's John's point. And yet there is a principle embedded in this expression that you must sit under for a moment. He says, which He and His disciples entered. Now, It is Christ alone who can bear this load. And it was necessary that he do so. And yet his disciples go there with him. In fact, he urges his followers to stay awake multiple times during the unfolding of this prayer. It was important that they be here for this, that they go into Gethsemane with him. And here's my question. Have you gone into Gethsemane with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come with him to face down the awful weight of your sin against God? Have you faced it down to agony within your soul? The way that he's expressing it here in our verses. Have you wrestled through? Honestly, have you ever come to wrestle through in the night watch a realization of your own guilt before God? Do you know what it means to agonize? To be burdened and grieved over sin. And to see the cup of God's wrath against you. To the point of crying out. And desperation that it passed from you. Have you gone with him in this way? 
You know, there is no inherent glory in recognizing the depths of sin and evil in your own heart. I'll share with you a personal anecdote. There have been a number of times when in trouble and discussing the truth of God's word and his own sin that I have witnessed both of my sons, even my young daughter, shedding tears, disturbed about their sin, about hell and the wrath of God. For a long time, they've done so. And never once did that fear of the wrath of God bring them to a place of reconciliation with God. A knowledge of what Jesus is going through in this garden and what he's seeing that he will go through on the cross. You can get there and not be saved. The glorious expression from his mouth, the one we saw baptized, this is what he said. That special day a month ago, he says, my sins, I I felt so sad about my sins and I prayed, God, forgive me. And I was happy. I was joyful because I knew that he had. God told him so. This is the difference. If you stay in Gethsemane, Jesus didn't stay there. I'm telling you, there's no real value in fear and trembling at a knowledge of God's wrath. If you stay there. There's no salvation offered to those who simply quake before God as they call on the rocks and hills to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. There's no glory in that. Jesus did not stay in Gethsemane. And He did not go into Gethsemane in order to stay there. He did not go to the cross in order to remain in the tomb. He rose. And like Him, We are meant to realize the weight of our sin and despair. And when you come to see that, when you come to see the offense that it is against God and you cry out for deliverance, the knowledge of your guilt, it's meant to thrust you into Jesus Christ. That you see this one who really has endured this for me, who really has drank the cup. He is the one that I'm cast to. And if you have cast yourself upon him, even as has been shown, you have been buried with him in death. That's what the scripture says. If you've been baptized into Christ, you've been buried with him in a death like unto his. Your sins have been blotted out. He nailed them to his own cross. And he promises there is a spiritual rising. There's a regeneration life from the dead spiritually now. And there's the promise of physical Life to come. And we anxiously await that day when our mortal bodies will rise with Him as well. What's the big deal about Jesus crossing the Kidron? You know, Shammai was guilty. He deserved the punishment, the death that he received, and the blood on his own head. Jesus had no sin. He had no guilt. He had no reason that called for His death and execution. But you, friend, did. And if you're outside of Christ, you still do. The wrath of God abides on you still if you're outside of Him. But He says to you today, here and now, I'm compelled if you'll look with me and we'll close with this thought from John Bunyan. Think about this. When a person becomes a Christian, it's no longer a priority to listen to the world. It's no longer a priority to care what the world may think. Everything changes. 
The world looks completely different. All of the temporal pleasures of this world become less enjoyable. Because a greater joy has been found. Thus you place your fingers in your ears. For you no longer care about the world's opinion. And you run like a lunatic crying life, life, eternal life. In other words, you cry Christ, Christ, the risen Christ. This is the hope. Look to him and live. Find deliverance from the one who crossed the Kidron, who drank the cup of God's wrath, endured it in full upon the cross. And you will find rest, true rest for your soul. It's glorious. You know, the conclusion of that death of Shammai's death was that the kingdom was established. And I believe you heard in the call to worship the end of that psalm. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. You know what moment that was? The enemies were put to shame the moment Jesus rose from the dead, having fully conquered every enemy of your soul. Trust in Him. Look to Him and be saved. Look to Him and live. At this time, I'll go ahead and prepare to close in prayer as we set our minds and hearts to gather around the Lord's table to remember and rejoice together in the very death of Christ which has conquered sin and death for us. And so with that, I will ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the glory of Your promise to give life, to forgive sins, to restore us to relationship with You because of what Your Son has endured for us. Father, I pray that You would give us one heart and one mind as we gather now around Your table. O Father, that we would have a sense of the reality of Christ and His death for us. We rejoice in Him and what He's done. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.